0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha was the clarion that alerted the world to the Flint water crisis. She will join us this hour to talk about her work in Flint, the book that she's written, What the Eyes Don't See, and where we are now in Flint with the idea that everyone deserves access clean water. That's all next on Detroit Today right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Water is life. It's the very basis for life on this planet, in fact, and access to it, consistent access to clean water, is one of the defining characteristics of sustainable life here on Earth. Four years ago, we had an environmental crisis right here in Michigan, in the United States, that highlighted just how precious access to clean water is. When an emergency manager switched Flint's water source from the Detroit system to the Flint River, but failed to take proper precautions, the entire city of Flint was exposed to unsafe levels of lead. It was catastrophic, easily the most devastating public health crisis in recent memory. Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, a pediatrician in Flint, was among the first to notice elevated lead levels in Flint's children and to sound the alarm about the crisis. Since then, she's fought without hesitation or break to get officials to pay attention, to fix the water system, and to address the effects of the lead exposure. And she wrote a book about the crisis. What the Eyes Don't See, which details what happened in the city as well as the intersection between so many different failures that produced the crisis. You can join me and Dr. Mona along with the Michigan Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick on September 10th at the Detroit Public Library at 6 p.m. for the finale of this summer's WDET Book Club reading, What the Eyes Don't See, and discussing safe water in Michigan. We want you to register to attend at WDET.org events. Dr. Mona, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Stephen, it's always
1: great to talk with you. Yes. Uh, So, uh, as I said in the open there, um, one of the things that is so poignant about this book and the way that you tell this story is that it takes in the intersection of so many things that failed, government accountability and transparency, incompetence, disinvestment, infrastructure, environment, advocacy, healthcare, all of them are in there. Talk about all the different issues that came together to create this huge, massive public health crisis.
2: Yeah, this book, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, you know, who are, the, who are the culprits of this crisis? And they want me to, like, often name, like, villains that created this crisis. And it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more nuanced because it is the intersections of all these different, often longstanding issues. Um, it's the you know, it's issues of capitalism and, and disinvestment and how, for example, General Motors left its birthplace and you know, we lost so many jobs in Flint and that disinvestment created unemployment and, and made things like poverty and violence endemic to the city of Flint. It's also about longstanding issues of racism in the city um, from things like blockbusting and redlining that created um, a city center that was so disenfranchised and where many folks um, left the city and with lack of regionalization um, made it unsustainable for the city to support its utility And you know for example for water and other public infrastructure needs Um, so there's many many long-standing causes um, that created the Flint water crisis it wasn't one person and one decision but it was almost a perfect storm of many issues from like I said disinvestment racism austerity capitalism uh, a whole slew of issues that that led to the decision to change that water Mm -hmm. source and then what happened
1: and and one of the really I think narrowing dynamics here uh, as this unfolded was the fact that state officials initially said the water was safe, that it was fine, that despite what people were reporting in terms of uh, reactions to the water, that some people were having uh, funny smells, funny tastes, they were saying it's fine. And even you initially believed that the state was right. Talk us through that period uh, about how you started to doubt what they were saying.
2: Yeah, and I think that really kind of gets at the title of my book, What the Eyes Don't See. Like, e- even I was blinded to what was going on. I didn't see anything differently, you know, in my patients, because uh, lead is a a silent pediatric epidemic, kids don't present with like acute symptoms of lead poisoning. Um, But it was kind of slowly, you know, disseminated through the system. Um, But yeah, for a year and a half, the state was reassuring everybody that everything was fine. And you remember those pictures on TV, brown, discolored water coming out of people's taps. And for so many people, it was easy for us to say, oh, this can't be real. How can this be? Like, how can like, Brownish water be coming out of people's taps. Um, Let's just choose to ignore this because it is about you know a different population far away. It's not me and it's not my kids, Um, which is kind of the 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 thrust of the story. Is that this was a city, this was a problem that people closed their eyes to, Uh, which also very much you know is a reference to the title. It's about people, places, and problems we choose not to see, not just in Flint but everywhere. Um, and how really it was our obligation to open our eyes and recognize that there was this injustice happening kind of right outside our back door um so yeah so it was the issue was being dismissed despite so many red flags and really early red flags and i think the most striking red flag is just a few months after the water switch so the water switch was in april of 2014. Um, by the fall of 2014 General Motors, which was born in Flint and and still has plants in Flint, uh, noticed that this water was corroding their engine parts. Mm. Um, And, I mean, it's mind-boggling. This water was corroding engine parts, our drinking water, and General Motors was allowed to go back to Great Lakes Water. Yet throughout this time, the people of Flint were literally told, to relax, that everything was okay, that everything was in compliance, even though they knew um, that something was wrong with this water.
1: Yeah. Um, talk about the difference here for children in terms of this lead exposure, that that um, the denial of about what was going on, of course, affected uh, everybody's health in Flint, and the, the switch had affected everyone's health. And as I said, it, it exposed everybody in Flint to lead poisoning Um, why is this different and so much more important when we're talking about young people
2: yeah. So, you know, the the water issue was more than just a lead issue. So at first there was uh, bacteria in the water and we had boil advisories. And then because of all the bacteria, they added a lot of disinfectant, which is chlorine. Because of all the added chlorine, there was skin and eye issues. And then we had a buildup of a chlorine byproduct, something called total trihalomethanes, which is a carcinogen that causes cancer. Um, we had, I think, about nine months of violations of, of that carcinogen. So lots of other issues. Um, and But throughout, once again, we were being reassured that everything was okay. Um, and then that all changed, at least for me, with, and I stopped reassuring my patients that everything was okay, was when I heard about the possibility of lead in the water. Um, when a pediatrician hears the word lead, it's, um, it's a call to action. We, we know what lead does. It's probably the most well-studied poison uh, known to man. We've known what lead has done really for centuries. Uh, It's potent. It's irreversible. And we worry about the children the most because it it, it attacks a child's developing nervous system. Um, It attacks the core of what it means to be you. And for kids, it means it impacts cognition, It actually drops IQ levels. Um, It can lead to things like developmental disorders, behavioral disorders. Um, It's even been linked to things like criminality. Um, And we now know through incredible science that it also impacts things like epigenetics, which can be passed on through generations, which is like the expression of of your genes. Um, So as as more incredible research comes out, we now increasingly know um, that there is no safe level of lead. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, there is not uh, any level of lead that's shown to be of any benefit. And our treatment really should be prevention. Um, So we worry about the kids the most because that's that is when their brains are developing and especially the younger children but lead impacts everybody. Um, subsequent research done after my research also showed lead increases in adult populations um, and as well as lead increases in animal populations. MSU's vet school came in because so many p- people were concerned about their pets um, and held animal clinics and also showed increases in in the in slint of lead levels so it impacts everybody but but for kids it's most detrimental. Mm.
1: Uh, I want to go back to September of 2015 uh, in a press conference where you're talking about the findings that were beginning to trickle out about Flint's water. I want to play the clip and then have you talk about what you were feeling and thinking during this press conference.
2: This research is concerning. These results are concerning. And when our national guiding organizations tell us primary prevention is the most important thing and that lead poisoning is potentially irreversible, um, then we have to say something.
1: That was that initial sort of sounding of the alarm, I guess, about what was was going on. Talk about what was going through your mind uh, during that press conference.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I felt great at that press conference. I'm like, awesome, we are finally able to share this research with the public. Um, having that press conference was a bit of an academic no-no. Um, when you do research <laughs> as an academic or physician, it's supposed to go through that peer review process, right. uh, and that process takes time. It can take months. It could take up to a year, and I literally walked out of my clinic, and I stood up at a press conference with a growing team of supporters around me and shared this research, which 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 really was not what you're supposed to do in academia. And I think one of the most um, incredible accolades I've gotten through this whole process was an award from MIT, which was a disobedience award, uh, specifically for not going through that (laughs) academic (laughs) process. Um, but, But that our kids didn't have another day and I wanted to scream these results. Like once I knew these results, I wanted to scream them off a rooftop, off, you know, off the top of my house, but I'm like, Hey, there's something wrong here. We need to act. Um, so I felt great at this press conference. I'm like, yes, I am doing my duty as a pediatrician. Like I literally took an oath to to protect children and to speak up for kids. Um, and I was doing very much my professional, you know, and ethical and moral job as, you know, as a, as a human being to stand up and protect children. Yeah. Um, but but that, that feeling of, yay, we're taking care of kids um, and we're going to protect them just lasted a short period because, um, you know, within minutes uh, the, the, after that press conference, the, I, was, I began to be kind of denied and attacked. Mm.
1: Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, the pediatrician and health advocate who revealed elevated blood levels in Flint during that city's water crisis. She is also the author of What the Eyes Don't See, the subject of this year's WDET book club. Uh, Dr. Mona, talk about your relationship with state officials. That's kind of changed over time um for, for a while, it seemed like maybe they were embracing you. And other times, as you said, you were really at odds with them.
2: Yeah, you know, I think initially when this research came out, um, they there was a period of being at odds and, and the state was saying that my numbers didn't make sense and that, you know, this they didn't add up to their numbers and they were very much kind of dismissing and, and denying these facts. Just just as they had done with anybody else who throughout this whole process had raised concerns. Uh, The amazing moms, the activists, the journalists, the water scientists, you know, for a year and a half, anybody who had raised concerns about this water issue um, was being denied and dismissed. Um, however, you know, after this press conference, and I think there was an incredible role of you guys, of the media, and of amazing journalists who, who caught on to the story, um, and then the tide began to turn, and eventually, kind of with our persistence, and with kind of fighting back, and with teamwork, and with more science, um, the state eventually conceded and admitted that, yes, you know, there is a crisis, um, and within weeks of that press conference, we went back to Great Lakes, treated water, um, and obviously, since then, have been working on our recovery Um, So, you know, my my work, my relationship with state and federal officials um, has always been that of a partner. Um, one of my favorite lines. So I grew up. Uh, my brother was this kind of Star Trek nut, and I grew up kind of being forced to watch a lot of Star Trek. And there's a line um, that I love from Dr. McCoy who says, "You know, damn it, Jim. Like I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm a doctor." Um, and I, I think of that line all the time in my head. Like I am not a prosecutor. I am a doctor, and my constituency is the children of Flint, and I will work with whomever from whatever political party. Um, to get whatever I need for not only Flint kids, but as many kids and, you know, the whole entire city as possible. Mm. Um, So that has been kind of my attitude going in. So in many trips to D.C. and many trips to the Capitol Hill, you know, I'm working with whomever, um, both sides of the aisle, because you have to, um, to share the story of Flint and to really share kind of what Flint needs, especially in the long term.
1: Let's go to Pat in Detroit. Pat, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, My
3: question for Dr. Atisha is, I watched a 15-minute interview with uh, Dr. Hernan Gomez, who's an emergency physician at Hurley Hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also a pediatrician and toxicologist, and he stated that poisoning is an exaggeration and that we have higher lead levels or lower ones today than we did when I grew up.
2: And he said what we, in effect, are doing is stigmatizing the youth of Flint by pointing them out that they will have lower IQ or they might have criminal dispositions. How do you feel? Because it creates confusion Hmm. in us, the public.
1: Yeah, Pat, that is a really great question. I'm glad you called to ask it. Uh, Dr. Mona, this is one of the the narratives I hear quite a bit about uh, the Flint water crisis, this question about... How bad this was, mm-hmm. and why? Uh, for instance, you know, I mean, I grew up in the '70s when we still had lead and gasoline mm-hmm. for a while, uh, and 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 in paint. Uh, why was this? Why was this worse? I think uh, Pat's getting to the, the 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 issue that there are some other physicians here who say, mm, maybe this wasn't quite the crisis we made it into.
2: Yeah, Pat, that's a great question, and there's actually an entire chapter in my book uh, that goes into lead history um so yeah we used to have a lot more lead in our environment and it was a really ev- evil corporate driven profit driven industry that put lead really forced the use of lead in gasoline and in paint and in plumbing largely to make a profit um there's a whole kind of section in there of, the, of general motors and kettering um, who put lead in gasoline tetra lead um, because they had a patent on it even when they knew it was dangerous so in the 1960s, 1970s, we did have a lot more lead in, in our environment. And we used to think that it was, it was safe. Those higher levels were safe. Uh, we've learned a lot since then. We have great pa- policies that have restricted the use of lead in paint and gasoline. And for the last few decades, those levels have been coming down. So, yes, people do have less lead exposure now than they did 20, 30 years ago. However, at that same time, we have also learned that there is no safe level of lead. That levels that we did think were okay decades ago, when children were, for example, coming to our ERs, our emergency rooms, with acute intoxications, and they were seizing and comatose, and they needed acute chelation, we don't see that as much anymore because those levels have been coming down so much. But at the same time, we've also learned that there is no safe level of lead, um, that, it should, that we should practice this thing called primary prevention, where children are never supposed to be exposed to lead. Um, so another thing that's nuanced in this whole story is that, yes, children's lead levels increased in Flint, but my research, my work never should have been necessary. We never, we should not be measuring the scope of this crisis by children's lead levels. Mm. If we are truly to practice that thing called primary prevention, when we detect lead in our environment, that should be the full stop. That's when we should be taking action. We should never be using children as the literal detectors of environmental contamination. And our lead, lead in water levels were astronomical. They were in the hundreds and thousands of parts per billion. Mm. Um, there was one home I remember in Flint with a lead level of 22,000 parts per billion. And kind of as a reference, uh, the EPA, recognizing there's no safe level of lead, has set something called a maximum contaminant level goal of zero parts per billion. The American Academy of of Pediatrics recommends one part per billion for for child care facilities and schools. Um, so the focus really needs to be on what's in our environment, not what's in our children. Uh, when we test lead in the blood of children, it's often too late. It has a short detection window. And our screening programs, which I based my research on, were designed to detect lead in household sources, not in water. So it's also a different age of exposure. Um, so there's a lot of nuances to the story. Um, but nobody's saying that Flint has has the worst lead levels in the country. There are zip codes in Detroit, I was in Cleveland last week, Philadelphia, Baltimore, that have higher rates of lead exposure. And it does not mean that what happened in Flint wasn't an injustice. Um, What happened in Flint was a man-made policy decision. Uh, We were literally poisoned by policy. And because of that, it warrants all this attention.
1: Mm. Uh, Again, Pat, I really appreciate your call uh, and that question. Uh, thanks very much for that. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Nicole in the, in Detroit. Nicole, what's on your mind?
2: Hi, good Hi. morning. Uh-huh. Good morning. This is Nicole. I have a question. Um, I teach in Detroit public schools and we have, you know, we faced this issue in our schools and the water in all the schools was cut off. And now we have installed, um, filtration, um, uh, systems, uh, water fountains with filters. And I was wondering about, if the doctor has opinion about the efficacy of those filtration system as a long-term solution.
1: Hmm. Uh, uh, thanks very much for that, uh, for that question. Uh, Dr. Mona, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so you know the Flint issue has really had this tremendous ripple effect across the country and one of those places has been in our schools across the nation where people have now opened their eyes to the possibility of lead and water. They're testing and they're finding lead and water. Um, And this is throughout our country. And as such, there's been three national reports, the most recently that's come out of Harvard School of Public Health, that has looked at the national issue of lead and water in schools and found, hey, yes, this is a national issue. And unfortunately, there are no federal laws that govern lead and water in schools or child care facilities. Um, So there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the national level to protect kids in schools. Mm. Um, So what a lot of schools are doing is this kind of filter-first approach um, because we do know um, that there is lead in the infrastructure that delivers drinking water to, uh, to kids. Lead in plumbing um, was very slowly restricted in this nation because of the strong arm of the lead industry. We didn't restrict the use of lead service lines until 1986, and those are the lines that go from your water main to the front of the house. But we didn't restrict lead in fixtures and faucets until 2014. Um, We see increasing lead levels in schools and and child care facilities kind of because of um, their unique infrastructure, but also because they have, for example, long periods of water non-use. So like weekends and overnight and breaks, which creates more kind of this um, concentration of lead in the water. So that kid who comes in Monday morning gets that first kind of, um, you know, go to the drinking fountain first. They're getting this higher concentration of potential lead exposure. Um, so the filters, if properly installed and properly maintained. Um, work. Uh, they have to be certified as lead-clearing filters by NSF, which is the National Sanitation Foundation, which is based here in Michigan. It's actually based in Ann Arbor uh, to be lead-clearing. But it can't just be these filters can't just be installed and people forget about it. They have to be properly maintained, hmm. um, and that's uh, that's a long-term commitment by school districts. So there's a, so until we get rid of the lead from all of our plumbing which will take long term investment, um, we need to uh, put into place these filters to protect especially our youngest children.
1: We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Mona Hanna-Attisha. You can join me and Dr. Mona, along with Michigan Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick, on September 10th at the Detroit Public Library at 6 p.m. for the finale of this summer's WDET Book Club, where we're reading What the Eyes Don't See and discussing safe water in Michigan. Register to attend at WDET.org events. you're listening to detroit today on 1019 wdet i'm stephen henderson and as always thanks for tuning in my guest this hour is dr mona hannah atisha a pediatrician and health advocate who revealed elevated blood levels, uh, blood lead levels in Flint during that city's water crisis. She's also the author of What the Eyes Don't See, the subject of this year's WDET Book Club. Dr. Mona, I want to talk a little about um, the 2016 State of the State Address, uh, where you were in the audience, uh, and this was the first time that Governor Rick Snyder uh, gave any sort of real uh, attention publicly uh, from him to the full effects of the, of the water crisis. Let's listen to a clip of his speech that night, and I want to get you to tell us what was going through your mind as he was saying this.
4: To begin, I'd like to address the people of Flint. Your families face a crisis, a crisis you did not create and could not have prevented. I want to speak directly Honestly and sincerely, to let you know we are praying for you, we are working hard for you, and we are absolutely committed to taking the right steps to effectively solve this crisis. To you, the people of Flint, I say tonight, as I have before, I am sorry and I will fix it. No citizen of this great state should endure this kind of catastrophe. Government failed you federal, state, and local leaders by breaking the trust you placed in us. I'm sorry most of all that I let you down. You deserve better. You deserve accountability. You deserve to know that the buck stops here with me. Most of all, you deserve to know the truth, and I have a responsibility to tell the truth. The truth about what we've done and what we'll do to overcome this challenge. I,
1: I, I always think of that moment as one of the most emotional moments uh, I ever saw for Governor Rick Snyder, who we, of course, got to know pretty well over the eight years that he was in office as a pretty stoic guy. Uh, I, I wonder, Dr. Mona, as you were sitting there at that moment watching him uh, talk about this, what what were you thinking?
2: Yeah, you know, it was it was a surreal moment. I I never expected that the state would concede that they would admit the error and and pledge to, you know, work on the recovery. The only perspective I had in this crisis was the Washington, D.C. lead and water crisis, which was over a decade ago and nobody ever there admitted error. Um, nobody was held accountable, and it lasted for years, um, and there was multiple cover-ups. So when I started this work um, and d- did this research and publicly shared it and, you know, was denied, I expected a year years-long battle to expose the truth and, and, and get what Flint kids need. Um, so to hear the governor very emotionally, very publicly um, admit error and pledge to, to fight for its recovery um, was was surreal and nothing that I would have expected. Mm.
1: Uh, and today, when you think about the promises he made at that moment, I will fix it. We will do everything to overcome this challenge. Do you feel like the state has met that obligation?
2: I think it's in process. Um, I, it's it's long-term work, and and that was one of the hardest parts about writing this book because the story is nowhere near over. Um, I'm in Flint right now, and we're still on filtered and bottled water Mm -hmm. as our pipes are being replaced. But hey, our pipes are going to be replaced this year, and that's amazing. Um, And we'll be the only third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. And now, because of Flint, many more cities are following, and and because of Michigan's new lead and copper rule, you know the entire state will replace all their lead pipes in the next 20 years. Um, in terms of what we need for the long-term recovery of children, we're, we're, we're getting there. It's, it's nowhere near complete. We need long-term investments, for example, in early childhood and home visiting and school health resources and nutrition support and health care support. Um, so th- and that has not been guaranteed for the long term.
1: Let's go to Carolyn in Royal Oak. Carolyn, welcome to Detroit Hello. today. I hey.
2: want to thank Dr. Mona for her guts and her intelligence. And I'm sorry it wasn't all brought forward much sooner. We had people in the in the job that could have noticed this, but thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. So I'm a Royal Oak kid. I went to Royal Oak (laughs) schools. Um, I I love that city. It's where I grew up. Um, And I, I, you know, I'm grateful for your kind words. But, you know, I I pinch myself every day. I am blessed and privileged to do this work. Um, And I'm I'm more than happy and, um, you know, that I have this opportunity to be able to be able to serve my community.
1: So so I want to talk a little about what we heard from Attorney General Dana Nessel recently when she said she was going to have to drop all of the charges against officials in the Flint water case, uh, case. but she also said that she may have to refile charges against the people uh, who are involved and that they are conducting a new investigation what was your reaction to that news
2: So I think like most folks, when you saw those initial headlines, my mouth just dropped, like charges are being dropped. You know, are you kidding me? Um, This has already been a drawn out process of accountability. It's been already going on for over three years um, but then I think when you kind of read the articles and, and dig deeper, it, it may be for a good reason. Um, so it sounds like millions of documents were not uncovered. Many devices were, were never uncovered as well, um, and that the new team, the new Solicitor General, um, kind of feels like they need to start over uh, to make this investigation as thorough um, and as comprehensive as possible. Um, So I hope that is the case. Um, There's actually a whole chapter in my book called Truth and Reconciliation. Accountability and justice is critical for healing. So as a physician, as somebody who's in Flint every day, working with Flint families, justice is probably one of the most important prescriptions that can be prescribed um, for families here. Justice needs to be served. Hmm. And I hope, like the Attorney General said, you know, justice delayed is not justice denied.
1: Yeah. Uh, Also, I want to get you to react to her accusations against former AG Bill Schuette. She says he handled this so badly that she had to do it this way and that it was sort of soaked in politics the way he approached uh, this w- was that your impression of the way the investigation had been conducted before
2: i can't really comment i don't really kind of have a first hand impression of, of how it went i was subpoenaed a few times but i you know I, I don't know the details of those investigations once again i'm a doctor not a prosecutor right,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so uh, in the last few years we have seen huge regulatory rollbacks and holes oh in staffing at the EPA, which of course oversees clean water oh. in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had a show where we talked to some former officials of the EPA, in fact, about how different the environment is there now. What, what, what's your sense of whether that might be inviting more Flint, uh, not just here in Michigan, but across the country?
2: Absolutely. And I think that's why the story of Flint and why this book is so resonant today, because it really speaks to the deeper crises that are happening in our nation. And and one of those is this disrespect for science, the disrespect for facts. I mean, common sense science was denied in Flint. And I, I love to share the story. There was a Flint area fourth grade classroom who repeated, who conducted the experiments on the corrosion Um it, in, in, about, regarding the water. So they took Flint water and they took Detroit water and they tested it. And these fourth graders also saw that there was this difference in corrosion control. And these are experiments, for example, the state said was too expensive and that they couldn't conduct. It was too difficult to do. But fourth graders did it. So here, you know, Flint, let Flint serve as this kind of, you know, egregious example of what happens when we disrespect science. Mm. and we, it, But also of the power that science and scientists hold and a greater community to speak truth to power um so we're seeing that nationally not only kind of with our denial of things like climate change and vaccines but also in these regulations um that if we learn anything from the flint stories is that we need stronger regulations um we need a stronger lead and copper rule we need a stronger uh safe drinking water act um especially kind of if we respect history and there's a lot of history in this book too Um, We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Cuyahoga River fire Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in Cleveland, which was really the impetus for the Clean Water Act. I mean, we have to, um, we've come a long way, you know, rivers aren't catching on fire as much. Flint River actually (laughs) has a history of catching on fire twice as well. Um, But we have to kind of follow the science and do what's best to protect public health. Hmm. Um, And we're not there yet. But but awesome and and really creative innovations are being seen at the state level um, and at local levels because of federal inaction.
1: Yeah. Uh, If you think of the trouble that we're having even this summer, I keep seeing pictures that people are posting on social media of PFAS uh, showing up in in places where they go to the beach and swim. I mean, your point about how critical this, this issue is now, just at the time that uh, we see this tremendous pushback against science and defunding of the the mechanisms that would keep us safe. It, it really is kind of frightening.
2: Yeah, I, there's quite a bit about this in my book. And I talk about the history, for example, of how lead got into gasoline. And one of General Motors kind of industry apologists was this guy named Robert Kehoe, who said that if you can prove that tetraethyl lead is dangerous, we'll take it out. Um, and that sets forth something called the Keyhole paradigm, which over a century ago has really governed how we practice in terms of public health and really in terms of regulations that something is safe until proven dangerous. Hmm. And that's exactly opposite of common sense, prevention, the precautionary principle, which is how we're governed in medicine by the concept that something should be dangerous until proven safe. (laughs) And because of this philosophy that was set a century ago, um, it it has persisted and it has led to this industry driven and profit driven Um, you know, mechanism where, you know, we have tons of chemicals out there in our environment um, that are not regulated. And it's really been kind of at the upper hand of industry. And we've also poorly held industry accountable uh, for what they've done. And I think the PFAS uh, disaster is another example. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, we're gonna take another quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, the pediatrician and author who is the inspiration for this summer's WDET Book Club. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined. My guest this hour is Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha. You can join me and Dr. Mona, along with the Michigan Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick on September 10th at the Detroit Public Library at 6 p.m. for the finale of this summer's WDET book club reading, What the Eyes Don't See, and discussing safe water in Michigan. We want you to register to attend at wdet.org slash events. Dr. Mona, I want to start uh, with uh, going back to that initial press conference again from September of 2015. And you talk about what the state and people in the city of Flint need to do to start moving in the right direction and keep themselves safe. Let's listen uh, to a small clip from, from that.
2: For high-risk groups, especially um, those infants who are on the formula um, and the pregnant moms, we, we would say no tap water. Um, lead clearing filters are a good idea. Um, more public education is needed. Um, and then we would advocate for a connection um, to a Lake Huron water source.
1: Uh, do you feel like uh, those recommendations were heeded by people after you said that?
2: Pretty much. I think we kind of, uh, you can check off almost every single one of them. <laughs> we got that um, right. <laughs> so uh, uh, Senator Stabenow helped us get um, pre made formula for all our babies on WIC. So um, babies didn't have to mix powdered formula with water or or it already came pre-mixed. Lead-clearing filters were distributed. um, And once we became a federal emergency, that got distributed even better. uh, We, within weeks, went back to Great Lakes water. Uh, So uh, there's always room for more education, even to this day. But by and large, those immediate steps were taken. Mm.
1: Uh, Let's go to the phones here. Uh, Charlie has uh, a really interesting idea along these lines. Charlie, uh, what's on your mind?
0: Yeah, I just wanted to applaud the doctor. I mean, I think what she's come up with is is like Silent Spring for our generation. Hmm. I worked for the L.A. Department of Water and Power as a maintenance construction helper when I was young. We installed water mains and service lines, fire hydrants, and we used lead every day to pour the Mm -hmm. joints. Um, I don't know if they still do. I mean, we were using iron pipe and and, uh, other materials, but lead joints. Um, And I always wondered why we never did anything about it. For the last 35 years, we've been in the cleanup business. In our business, PCBs has been a huge thing. We've been eliminating it from all kinds of systems because it's a suspected carcinogen. Mm -hmm. Why isn't lead treated the same way? Because like pipelines, it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. It's not a river catching on fire. People don't pay attention to what they can't see. And I just really want to applaud her. Because just like Silent Spring, this is a clarion call. If we don't do something, we're just going to continue poisoning ourselves.
2: Mm. Yeah. It's ridiculous. You,
0: and I just want to thank you.
2: Thank you. And you, that's also why the book is called What the Eyes Don't See, because we we don't see what's underground. We think our roads and our bridges are in bad repair. What's underneath needs as much investment. Um, and we also don't see lead in water. It's clear and it's, in, it's invisible. It's colorless. It's odorless. It's tasteless. So we have to open our eyes to it and then we can act.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let's go to uh, Glenn in Midtown. Glenn, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey,
3: thanks for taking my call. This is a great program. I'm glad there's so much attention uh, being focused on this. And I think the previous caller about future problems and what the EPA needs to do is extremely important. Mm. Uh, But we have this uh, disaster essentially in, in Michigan. And uh, my recommendation is that we need to hold everybody accountable. That would be the politicians who are there to protect the people. And it doesn't seem as it was done in this case. And also the businesses that are trying to make money and aren't concerned about the health of the people. But what I think we should do in Michigan to solve the problem and actually get led out and fix our infrastructure is add a particular Income tax, a state income tax, to fix the lead problems and the other types of problems like this in our infrastructure huh. in the entire state. Let Michigan be a leader in in fixing these problems, and it takes money. And the people of Michigan need to understand this is not a, a cheap problem.
1: Right, uh, Glenn. I really appreciate the call and the idea there, uh, Doctor Mona. Can you talk about? I mean, we are replacing the lead lines in Flint, the water lines in Flint. But uh, I think as Glenn points out, this is something that we've got to do uh, in almost every city. I know one city is an exception. The city of Lansing yeah. replaced its lead pipes uh, with with uh, more modern equipment a few mm-hmm. years ago. But, but if you go to most places, in michigan we have the same issue
2: yeah there's only two other cities in the country that have replaced their lead lines and and one is lansing michigan because of the leadership of verge monero over a decade ago and the other is madison wisconsin um and it took them over a decade uh the new michigan lead and copper rule which uh came in uh, really kind of heating the lessons of flint uh it has recommended or, or you know or required that all the lead lines in michigan be inventoried and replaced over the next 2 decades mm. Unfortunately, there's not, like, funding that is coming with this. So the water utilities are very much up in arms, like, how are we going to be able to pay for this without passing on these rates to the consumers who are already paying a lot for their water bills? And obviously there's an issue with water shutoffs in places like Detroit, and in Flint, Um, one creative uh, uh, option that has been considered in in other states and we're encouraging Michigan to consider is looking at holding the lead industry accountable. Hmm. Uh, So unlike many public health evils like tobacco and asbestos, the lead industry has largely gotten off. They have not paid For their damages and very similar to the other industries they knew it was harmful yet through kind of media and lobbying they continued the use of lead and its marketing not only in paint and and in plumbing um and also in gasoline so there have been uh, efforts in other states and we're encouraging our state to also look at this uh of of holding that industry accountable and getting damages to then fund some of this infrastructure work
1: yeah you know, uh, the, my next question is kind of related to this this subject, but I, I wonder what you think will have to be done to restore trust uh, in state and local leaders, the trust that really got broken during this this water crisis. Uh, you talk about fixing uh, the lines, I think that's, that's certainly a step in the right direction. But I get the sense that, that that's not quite enough. Uh, what, what else do you think needs to be done to make people in Flint or in the whole state really believe that leaders have yeah. their best interests in mind?
2: Yeah. And, you know, with Flint, that trust wasn't lost just in our water crisis. It not. was it that's was lost right. probably before yeah. uh, because Flint for years has suffered from disinvestment and, uh, you know, cuts in revenue sharing and, you know, population loss and all these other policies uh, for defunding of our schools that have really left this city and you know in a in that near bankrupt state that then forced it to be taken over by the state uh... so that rebuilding of trust is going to take a long-term commitment uh, to the people of Flint and in the city's full recovery. Uh, so I think that's, you know, it's, it's long-term work. It requires a continuation. You know, it's not just about replacing our lead pipes, but it's also about, you know, making sure that kids and families have everything else they need to be healthy and successful. And that, that's from schools to, um, to health care services to safe communities, It's you know, adequate policing and what have you. Criminal justice is a long list of things that need to happen. Um, And, you know, what's interesting, this trust question comes up a lot. I was speaking with a a group of philosophers and this issue of trust came up and somebody so beautifully said, well, don't you think it's important to always have a healthy dose of mistrust? And I, I think they're absolutely right. You know, I think part of the problem in Flint was we, a lot of us were maybe too trusting and we believed that everything the state and the federal government was saying, that the water was fine. I think it's really important for all of us to, to remain curious, to keep our eyes open, to ask questions, and maybe to have a, just a tiny healthy dose of mistrust.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and the, We in the media, of course, yeah. uh, are very familiar with that, uh, <laughs> that yep. healthy dose yep. of, uh, of mistrust. Yep. Um, uh, I also wonder what you make of the time that's lapsed um, between the crisis and now and whether we've lost focus uh, over that time. I mean, that's always a fear, I think, is that the crisis gets everybody uh, energized to to meet the challenge. Uh, but over time, everyone, you know, kind of gravitates to other issues or just, just forgets. Are we forgetting about Flint?
2: Yeah. You know, I think it's natural. There's crazy things happening in the news that warrant our attention, and that's totally understandable. Um, but I think the neat thing that's happened is the incredible power of what Flint has done to the state and national landscape. Um, so, for example, my next phone call is with Newark, New Jersey, who mm-hmm. has a lead and water crisis right now. The last action level for their city was like 67 parts per billion, and they're passing out filters. And what, what's been really neat is that it's really open people's eyes nationally to issues, not only of uh, drinking water issues, but also lead issues, infrastructure, environmental justice issues, children's health issues. Um, So although kind of our acute crisis may have faded from the national news, um, our impact and really kind of a multiplicative impact of this crisis is is far reaching.
1: Okay, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, it is always really great to talk with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Stephen, you're awesome, and I am so humbled <laughs> and honored that this book is the uh, book club choice.
1: And and also, I should say, you're going to be joining us September 10th for our finale book club event. Absolutely. at the looking forward to it. Public Library, yes, that will be really great. All right, Thank we you. will talk with you soon. Now we want to talk with a couple of the producers who are responsible for all of the great things that we have been able to do with the WDET Book Club. Jake Neer is a producer. For Detroit Today, and an associate producer, Elena Frugier, joins him. Welcome to the studio, guys. Hey, Steven. Hey, what's yeah. going on? So this is the second year that we've done this uh, kind of thing where we take a book and try to read it together as a community and welcome the community to interact with us in person in different communities around Southeast Michigan. Uh, it's gone really well, and we've had a really good summer of in-depth discussion.
5: That's right. We've had five events so far. Most of them have been really well attended. I love the fact that we started in Flint. Uh, unfortunately, I was out on parental leave for that one, so I couldn't <laughs> be there. But uh, that's it was so great. It seemed like that conversation went so well from everything I heard. Um, just the fact that we were there, I think, was was really amazing. The last event in Ferndale... Standing room only. I mean, just an amazing conversation with Kurt Guyette from the ACLU of Michigan and Jim Nash with Oakland County. Um, just, a, you know, I, I, I just I always get I'm always blown away by these events.
6: Flint was really great. It was also almost standing room only. I think there may have been three seats left. Um, in Flint. And we also had ABC come out. We had a local publication come out that did our coverage there. We had Congressman Dan Kildy. We had Jaquanda Johnson, who is of the Flint beat. And we had mom and activist Melissa Mays. So Flint actually was one of the greatest that we started with. And, you know, it's just built from there. We've been to St. Clair Shores, We've also been to Ann Arbor and we just, as you mentioned, ended in Ferndale last night and each one has had a different perspective. We've had so many people comment just from the book as well as like local representatives and I think we've done a very good job of talking about not just the Flint water crisis but things that are still impacting Michigan waterways today.
1: Yeah, I I think at each discussion we've gotten really deep into the questions about environmental justice, the questions about infrastructure, the questions about how we maintain all of these things in a better way uh, than we have in the past as a way of trying to prevent the next Flint from happening. Uh, The guests that we've had have been really incisive in the way that they've been able to talk about that. And the folks who've showed up for each event have really participated in uh, the conversation. And that, for me, is the real payoff of these kinds of things. This idea that were able to bring people together with decision makers, uh, but also with each other to talk about what is going on in their communities.
6: I love the engagement of the residents in the community, when they ask questions, when it's not just us having a back and forth disque- discussion, that's what I think is important because we can talk about all the facts and what we know as journalists and as reporters, but the people who are actually living in these communities, living in these residences, just like you know, we're dealing with Newark right now, How Highland Park has also been on the table with some of these similar issues, and it's been like five years since Flint has happened. I think the fact that we're addressing what's happening now and the democracy of it all, because because look at the communities that it's impacting. I think that's another issue um, when we talk about emergency management, which was brought up a lot heavily throughout this series and the democracy for the local government, how that can change the course of events.
1: And so we're leading up to our September 10th finale event at the Detroit Public Library. Let's talk about what we're going to do there. We've got a really special guest.
5: Well, of course, you know, this entire hour you've been hearing Dr. Mona hanna talk about her amazing work, her amazing book, and she'll be there. Uh, you can actually see her in person. You can maybe even shake her hand and, and talk <laughs> about everything that you've uh, been reading in the book or hearing from her or just ask her questions about what's going on in Flint, what happened, what's what's happening now, that sort of thing, which I think is just an amazing opportunity for For listeners. Um, And we also have state Senate minority leader, state Senate Democratic leader, Jim Ananick, who is from Flint, who, you know, when I was covering the uh, legislature for four years, uh, Jim Ananick uh, being in that leadership position, it was just a really powerful moment for him because he, you know, he happened to be uh, the lawmaker that really was raising his voice for the people of Flint during that time. And also when uh, sort of the the lawmakers in Lansing uh, in, in a lot of ways you could say drop the ball on their investigations into the Flint water crisis and really didn't do a whole lot other than hold a couple of uh, meetings where they talked and there was no real action that followed uh, at the time. Uh, we, he sat on that committee and he was raising hell the entire time. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm really excited to hear from Senator Ananick and, of course, Dr. Mona. And we should also mention, too, that there if you've missed uh, these conversations, these live events, uh, they will be coming your way in podcast form uh, in the next uh, few months. So stay tuned for more details on that one.
6: Yes, guys, as Jake mentioned, um, you can definitely catch that podcast later in the fall. But for right now, if you want to connect with us, make sure to go on Facebook. We have a WDET book club. You can also follow us on Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And you can also hashtag the book club if you want to. We're on all social. You can catch us on demand. And if you've missed anything, you can also listen to All the on-air interviews we've done as well, because Stephen has done weekly interviews about the crisis on WDET.org.
5: Hashtag WDET Book Club.
1: Yeah. So again, September 10th at the Detroit Public Library. Join us for the finale of the WDET Book Club. Uh, You will get to have a great discussion with other members of the community and with Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha herself. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.